again. So I hope you enjoyed that delicious lunch. At this time, I'd like to announce that next week's topic will be on the Conservative Initiative Engage, and that other upcoming sessions will be listed on the SACPA website at www.sacpa.com, where you will also be able to find recordings of this and past sessions in audio and in podcast form. Again, I'd like to run through a few more reminders and housekeeping details before we proceed with the Q&A session. There is a suggestion box placed in the lobby for any ideas and comments you may have about today's performance. We'd love to hear your feedback, so please feel free to put forward some of your thoughts on today. At this time, I'd like to invite Harsha Walia back on stage for questions on the topic of undoing border imperialism. As you ask your questions today, please use the microphone provided. Begin by stating your name, keep your comments to a couple sentences if at all possible, and please return to your seat in a timely manner after having asked your question. Thanks again. We look forward to your questions. Hi, my name is Peter Beal, and uh, I, I want to ask a question first of all. How I'm going to backphrase it a little bit. The the uh, tr uh, the phenomenon of Donald Trump, and in Germany, for instance, which has taken a million refugees, then I'll have alternative for Germany coming up. The old Nazi party, basically, they've come up for three years. In three provincial elections, they took 12, 15, and 24 percent. So how do you balance our compassion with democracy when there is such a backlash? Thank you. Um, yeah, we were actually just talking about this. Um, I mean, Germany actually, a few things. Germany hasn't actually taken a million refugees. Um, I was in Germany in, um, in November, October, November of past year. Um, and there's actually a few things that... Uh, that I realized about Germany, and a lot of people obviously in Germany were talking about this, right? What do we do about the fact that there's uh, a refugees welcome movement, and also at the same time we're seeing the rise of, of groups like Pegida and others. And so um, the few things that I learned, because I think that's kind of probably more pertinent is what I actually learned from people in Germany, um, is a few things. One is so that there's not a million refugees that were accepted by Merkel. Uh, the other few things that's important to realize is that when refugees were welcomed into Germany, Refugees in Germany are held in lagers, and lagers are camps. And actually, a number of refugees were being held in former concentration camps, right? So when we're talking about welcome, we need to be talking about, you know, what conditions of welcome are we creating? Um, and many refugees were actually not allowed to leave the lagers. So you actually are in a pass system, which is very similar to South African apartheid, to the Indian Act pass system here, where your mobility is completely restricted. So you can't leave, you have a, a band and you can't leave um, the area of the lager without that band. So um, I think it's important to situate not just numbers, but the conditions of welcome, I think is important. Um, and the other thing I think is, is that yeah, I mean, I, for me, I'm not sure that the rise of Pegida or the rise of Donald Trump is necessarily a reflection of democracy. I think that they're a reflection of the rise in the right and the forces that allow the right to flourish. And so, you know, um, that includes corporate media, 
That includes, you know, an education system in Berlin where people were told all kinds of myths. So I was shown textbooks where people were told all kinds of myths about refugees. So old textbooks were resurfacing. Um, there was an incident on New Year's in Germany where one refugee man was accused of, um, or sorry, a number of refugee men were accused of sexual violence um, against a white German woman. And then it was front page news um, in all these German papers. And then two months later, it came out that the story was completely false, that the woman had actually given a testimony not against 16 refugee men, but against someone in her school. And it was like, how did this become national news, right? So these are they're deliberate conditions that foster racial intolerance, I think. And so for me, the question is not, you know, how do we balance democracy with refugees welcome? I think the question is, how do we generally build a society and institutions that are just and inclusive and that do not tolerate racial inclusion and that do not fan the flames of racial intolerance? And I think in Germany, that's a big part of what's happening. Um, and another big part of definitely what's happening um, in Germany that I heard a lot about was, you know, and this is this is not uncommon in Canada as well, is that there was there's not a lot of conversation that's fostered around, for example, the real causes of unemployment. So another kind of cause of the rise of Pegida that I heard um, in Germany was that people were blaming refugees for stealing jobs. Right. And this is not this is the case in Canada, too. We have a lot of working class people who think that immigrants and refugees are going to steal jobs. Um, but there's also a bigger question, which is, well, why do we have rising unemployment, right? Like when we live in times of austerity, we know that we have rising unemployment while banks and corporations continue to get bailed out and continue to make profits, right? Um, Unite Against Austerity has done an entire campaign showing that if we just had progressive instead of regressive taxation, and if we just ended corporate subsidies to the oil and gas sector, that would put $6 billion into the public purse. Six billion dollars, right? And so I think when we're talking about unemployment, that's the more relevant question to ask. And so I think that becomes part of our responsibility is how do we not be pitted against each other, but how do we actually lay responsibility and blame, frankly, on the elite that are responsible for creating these kinds of situations in the first place? And the final thing that I'm going to say um, about the relationship of democracy to, for example, welcoming refugees and immigrants, is that this is not just a question of generosity, right? This is not just a question of like, you know, we get to decide how many refugees we welcome or not in order to balance our democracy, because we have to realize in a lot of situations, whether it's Canada or Europe or the United States, we're often complicit in why people are being forced off their lands in the first place. Right. So this is a question of justice. This is not a question of charity. It's a question of justice, because if we don't want immigrants, then frankly, we shouldn't be involved in creating immigrants. Right. So we can't have it both ways. And so for me, those are some of the ways I think we we resolve some of these these questions. I think they're more systemic um, than just a question of, of democracy and the wishes of the majority, if, if that makes sense. Thank you for that question. Hi, my name is Knut Peterson. Thanks very much for coming to Lethbridge. Hi, <coughs> Uh, my question relates to uh, put in if you can put into perspective the difference between uh, economic mm -hmm. uh, refugees and people that is fleeing for their lives. Mm -hmm. I mean, most of those people would probably be just as soon stay where they are if if they could have a reasonable chance of living through it. Uh, can you address that a little bit? 
Yeah, thank you. Did you do you also have a question? Do you want me to take both of them together? Did you have a question in the red? No, I'll wait. Okay. Um yeah, I think it's an important point and I think um I think it's important to be attuned of the differences and also how sometimes those differences are used again to pit different communities of people fleeing for different reasons. So traditionally under the, the UN Convention, the, uh, the Convention of 1951, a refugee is defined as someone fleeing persecution. Um, and so that's uh, defined as someone fleeing persecution based on ethnicity, religious grounds, minority status, etc. cetera. Um, recently in many countries, gender-based gender persecution has been added. It's not been added to the convention, but different countries, including Canada, have added gender-based guidelines, for example. Um, so refugee is often defined as someone fleeing persecution which is traditionally understood as, you know, forms of military violence, political violence. Economic migrants really has come about in with the rise of late capitalism, with this current period of capitalism, where we're seeing, you know, as I said earlier, one billion migrants around the world who are forced, often forced off their land due to completely unsustainable livelihoods anymore. Um, you know, just in the past five years, the World Bank est it's estimated that World Bank funded projects have displaced approximately three to five million people. So, you know, privatization, um, resource extraction, all the different things that's caused impoverishment in parts of the global south creates economic migrants. The term most kind of popularly came into use as a result of what's happening in the United States. So economic migrants as a result of NAFTA, for example, the North American Free Trade Agreement, when we've seen over 1.5 million Mexican migrants move, um, move north into the southwest of the United States are called economic migrants because of the destitution of agreements like NAFTA, the North American Free Trade Agreement. So, you know, those are some of the, those are the differences uh, in the ways that they're understood and used. At the same time, um, I think those categories are often conflatable, right? So it's often, it's not uncommon for people who are fleeing to flee multiple reasons because we don't live under single conditions, you know, political. So even in Syria, you know, right now the Syrian refugee crisis is informed by political violence, but a lot of Syrian refugees were first internally displaced migrants as a result of the drought in Syria that forced over 75% of Syrian farmers from rural areas into urban areas, right? So first they're migrants who are being forced off their land, so they're economic migrants moving into urban areas um, for other economic opportunities and then become, for example, refugees. And I mean, it's not that continuous, it's not that linear. Um, but all to say it's, it's, you know, often people have multiple forces that are operating in their lives. Um, and also we have to, I think, be aware of how sometimes the idea of economic migrants has been weaponized against refugees to say you're not a real refugee if you're an economic migrant. Um, so, you know, that's why for me the idea of, of thinking about and deconstructing some of these different categories is important while being attuned to the, the differences, right? So there are differences in conditions um, between refugees and migrants, but also being aware of how sometimes there's an idea that someone is a more legitimate migrant or refugee and others are not. So economic migrants are often considered not real refugees. And conversely, oftentimes real refugees are considered not economically valuable <laughs> because they're refugees fleeing persecution and may not contribute to the wage economy. So it often works in both ways uh, where those communities are pitted against each other, particularly when it comes to state policy. Thank you. <coughs> Terry Shellington, uh, thank you very much for your presentation. You. It's a pretty straightforward, uh, hard-hitting <laughs> um, th 25 minutes. Um, it seems to me you're asking a lot of us, I, I resonate with Peter's question, uh, you're asking us to move from selfishness to compassion as a culture and from being obsessed with the welfare of our own ethnic group to being world citizens. Mm. And we're not 
hardly anywhere down the road on that journey to being world citizens. But it strikes me, so I, I suspect we'll not make it all in one, uh, mm -hmm. there's no easy button from Staples to push on this, but I suspect one of the easiest ones to knock off would be to insist that private sponsorships are outside and above uh, government quotas, mm -hmm. and, and uh, we could easily nail that one uh, early mm -hmm. on, I would think. Mm -hmm. I think it's outrageous that the government actually saves money mm -hmm. uh, when, when people gather together and do a private sponsorship. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. I think that's a really um, realistic and legitimate demand. Um, I think also, as I was mentioning, you know, s uh, the Federal Review of Immigration of CBSA and the Temporary Foreign Worker Program is um, very doable and, and very practical in terms of those. And I just want to say one thing, too, in terms of, I mean, I think absolutely um, in terms of uh, your comment on compassion. Um, but also, I think it's a reminder to all of us that, you know, immigrants are, are already in our communities. Um, and in many instances, you know, for example, the Chinese Canadian community have laid roots on these lands for over 100 years. And so for me, immigration is as much about the world as it is about communities that are already here on these lands. And again, with the, the situation of temporary foreign workers, many of these workers have been working in Canada for three generations, yet they continue to be temporary and foreign, right? Like these are these are categories that render them foreigners, even though they've been here for 50 years, three generations, or the story, for example, of Agnes's dad who was living here for 35 years, right? So um, I think one of the ways, the, the kind of hard thing about talking about immigration and refugees, sometimes it's seen as something that's not already within our communities, when in fact, these are people who are neighbors, these are people in our communities, and it's about ensuring rights and dignity for people who are already here on these lands, and in many cases, whose ancestors have been here on these lands. Um, and I think it's also, particularly for, for people who have benefited uh, from the Canadian immigration system, I think it's always so central for us to remember, you know, myself included, how really, you know, the, the ways that most people came to be in Canada was the fundament was, you know, the settler colonial process. And also when it comes to, to um, immigration, it's the generosity of indigenous peoples, right? So if we want to talk about immigration policy, and the Truth and Reconciliation Commission actually has an entire section on calls to action related to citizenship, um, which includes, for example, really delinking Eurocentricism from immigration in Canada and recognizing that the jurisdiction of immigration really should, that if indigenous people should be involved in that question, right? So I think part of that generosity and compassion to being world citizens, I think, is also a turn inwards as much as it is a turn outwards. Thank you. Uh, good afternoon, ma'am. Uh, no, ma'am, please. <laughs> you are absolutely unbelievable for knowledge and wisdom. I, I wish you were introduced as to are you working for Amnesty International or who you really are, but it's been that double-fisted fight. I've been called a radical. I'm a, I was a union organizer starting at the age of 18. And here you are, blown the wild. The question is, second question is, are you aware of Mr. Mulroney's disposition of giving away and inviting the wealthy of the world to come to Canada with that free citizenship, instant citizenship. Are you aware of it? Was that a government a protocol or was that his, his own personal protocol? It was just in the last, our, uh, last uh, edition of, of McLean's magazine that he was responsible for it. And uh, that's going to deprive these 
generations of Vancouver and, and Toronto for generations of being able to own a house. And the stories you tell us about what's happening is unbelievable. Thank you for coming, by the way. Thank you so much. Thank you for your kind words. And thank you for your work for much longer than I. Um, so two questions. Yeah, who am, <laughs> who am I? <laughs> um, uh, no, I don't, I don't work for Amnesty International. Um, my paid work is actually, I work at the Downtown Eastside Women's Center, which is located in the Downtown Eastside of Vancouver, which people may know is the, the poorest off-reserve postal code in the country. Um, and I work with women, women and elders, in a women's center that has approximately 500 to 900 women accessing the space a day. Um, and my work uh, with immigrants and refugees is not my paid work. It's completely unpaid. Um, as, as an organizer with, amongst other groups, no one is illegal. Um, so that's a little bit <laughs> of who I am. Um, yeah, I actually did not know uh, about the, um, Brian Mulroney and that program, so thank you for, for raising that for all of us, and I'll definitely look into it. Um, so I can't speak to that, but it is, it's actually been in, uh, in government policy for a very long time uh, with the investor class. And the investor class of, of immigration is basically where at different times the monetary value has shifted. But basically, if you're willing to invest, you know, a million, two million, again, the numbers fluctuate into a Canadian business, you're able to not get citizenship, but you're, you're, get, you're able to get um, permanent residency right away in Canada. Um, yeah, no, typically not tax-free. So again, it's I'm not sure about what happened with Brian Mulroney, um, but you have to invest. I mean, there's always incentives for, for business people, as we know. Um, but, uh, and you know, and really, you know, when you take the temporary foreign worker program and the investor class, they really, again, I think represent that the immigration system that we have is not broken. It's actually perfected to meet the needs of capital in the state, right? Which is that the investor class, if you represent capital, you can come. If you represent cheap labor, you can come, although you will be disposed of. And anyone else who actually is trying to come and migrate with permanent residency rights, right? Like, not necessarily to meet the needs of capital or the labor market, but to come as family members, as seniors, as refugees, then you're gonna face an immense amount of barriers. And again, I would argue this is a, a, per a perfected system. I um, mean, this is not just me, actually. The, the, um, globally, Canada has uh, become the model of immigration policy, which is why I think it's a particularly important to know immigration policy. Uh, and this is a template that leaders around the world are trying to follow. So while we think immigration policy is benevolent and generous, and you know, I'm not saying that it's not completely not the case, but Canada has perfected what's called the system of managed migration. And the system of managed migration is becoming the global template around the world. The United States is looking to Canada to implement this model. And the system of managed migration is exactly as it sounds. How do we have immigrants come to Canada, but we can manage them and ensure that they meet our needs rather than them having all the rights and dignity, right? So um, and the temporary foreign worker program and the investor class one that you mentioned are pivotal to this global model of, of managed migration. And so it's a perfected model. It's not, it's not a broken one. Thank you. Uh, my name is Van Christou, and uh, I too would like to thank you for, uh, for an outstanding presentation of a, of a, a difficult subject and an important subject, current subject. Um, there are enough people in this room, as I look around, who uh, I think, along with me, resonate with what you said about the racism that was shown here in Canada when the Japanese people were, were interned. Uh, there were third-generation Canadian citizens 
who lost everything uh, at that time to respond to the American demands after Pearl Harbor that we protect our western shores. Um, and there was hardly a murmur at that time mm. in this community or in any other community in Canada mm. uh, when that happened. Now, that's a historical ta uh, uh, moment. The other part that, that comes to mind is that the, I, I doubt if there's any person in this room who doesn't come from a family of migrants. <laughs> and, uh, we, and these migrants who came to Canada <laughs> from all over the world worked very hard <laughs> and established a society uh, that we're proud of today. But the question is that it also has established a standard of living which perhaps is unreasonable in the world as it is today, and is possibly one of the causal fi factors for these people having so, so much need to leave their homes and abandon everything that they've grown up with in order to move to a, to a better place. Yeah. Um, so my question is, along with the races, the, our history of racism here, and our, the hard work that we put into it, into establishing this land the way it is, and the fact that we don't want to lose it, uh, will that greed and the racism stand in the, the way of our becoming global citizens? Thank you for that question. Um, I think, to be honest, my, you know, to some degree it's a question about human nature, right? And to me, when I, when I think about racism and greed, for me, I think it's much more about institutions and individuals. I don't... Um, I don't. I mean, we all may be racist. We might all be oppressive, but fundamentally, I think I fun. I think that human beings, more than anything, are invested in compassion. Are invested in our neighbors. Um, care very much about the principles of of humanity and equality. But we live in structures and systems reinforced by media and more, um, that 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 um, make us disbelieve, distrust, or fear our neighbors and people in our communities. And so. Um, you know, and this isn't just a, the Japanese-Canadian internment. You know, five years ago, the Tamil refugees came, the MV Sunsi and the Ocean Lady. And for me, you know, from, for me, that was my experience in my generation, in my lifetime of like, how can this be that 492 Tamil refugees, men, women, and children, 492 of them on MV Sunsi, come to the West Coast, you know, hundreds of years after we talk about all these apologies, the Kamagata Maru, the head tax, residential schools, all these things, every single one of them is jailed, including women and children, and there's not a peep, right? Um, and that, you know, when we're doing marches down the street, there's a few hundred people, but most people don't care. We actually had bottles thrown at us. We had stuff thrown at us when we were marching in support of the Tamil refugees. Um, but for me, it was like, you know, but then when we would talk to people on the street and be like, you know, why, why do you feel this way? Why do you feel that women and children and men that you know nothing about should be jailed? And they'd say, well, I read in the newspaper that they're all terrorists, right? And so I think holding the institutions responsible for greed and racism is, is more imperative than our kind of individual biases because our individual biases are informed by the, the producers of culture. Um, and so in the case of Tamil refugees, you know, the newspapers, not dissimilar to the, the internment that you were talking about, the newspapers were filled with front page news about all of these refugees are terrorists, 
All of these people are queue jumpers. All of them are illegals. And that was front page news. And it's like, how could we possibly believe that about 492 people without knowing a single thing about 492 of them? Like, it takes a lot to believe that about 492 people without actually knowing a single thing about them. And I was saying this yesterday, too. You know, one of the most laughable things was that most people believed they were trying to sneak into the country. And it's like, you can't sneak into the country on a ginormous boat waving a massive flag, right? Like, they were very publicly declaring asylum. They were not sneaking in. Um, but again, I think, you know, media, as well as government narratives at the time, of course, the Tory government played a huge role in informing the racism of, of a lot of Canadians. And so for me, when we're talking about addressing racism or, you know, the second point you made about greed and our lifestyles, um, which kind of links to that question earlier for me about austerity, right? Like we have lifestyles that we feel are endangered. Healthcare is getting cut. Childcare is getting cut. You know, all our public services are getting cut, but not because other people are demanding more from us. It's because we're living in a system that chooses to prioritize spending on the military and prisons and oil subsidies and more. Right. So um, I think placing responsibilities on those institutions is more important than um, our 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 perceived or real individual greed or racism, because I think those are the ones that are ultimately more responsible and feed into our sense of scarcity, right? The logic of austerity is to trickle down and feed our own sense of scarcity, even though it's not real. It's often created. Um, so, you know, all to say, I think for me, I think it's completely possible. And that's why I think what we need is a fundamental transformation of our cultural institutions and our public institutions and the way that policy is made to ensure that it's actually policies that uphold the rights and dignity of all people, the equality of all people. Um, and particularly when it comes to the question of our standard of living and workers, you know, for me, migrant workers are actually the flip side of outsourcing, right? So we rely on the labor of the global south. That is where labor is outsourced, sweatshop labor, you know, increasingly industries are outsourced. And migrant labor is the flip side of that outsourcing. Migrant, labor are, migrant laborers are basically insourced labor, labor that cannot be outsourced. And so if we want to maintain our standard of living, I don't think we're going to maintain it by continuing to be protectionist about our way of living because increasingly um, we know that capital is going to rely on cheap labor. So the only way that we ensure that we as you know working people are not exploited is to ensure that all workers have a living wage, that the wage floor is lifted for all workers and to have an internationalist perspective rather than a protectionist perspective. So I think the idea of world citizens or internationalism actually benefits all of us. I actually think it does benefit us. Awesome. Oh, sorry. I do have to interrupt. That's actually all we have time for today. We have. Sure. That Mark Twain uh, uh, was quoted as having said that anyone who doesn't read a newspaper is uninformed. Anybody who does read a n newspaper is misinformed. Is yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Thank you. No, <laughs> honestly, I'd love to hear more Q&A, but we do have a, an event right after, so if you could just come up to Harsha after and ask some questions, or she does have some books for sale if you want to inquire about those. So yeah, thank you everyone for your time today. That was, that was fantastic, your questions. 